Hi, I'm Mike Nagrant, and you're listening to Hungry Magazine from Chicago, Illinois. Four, three, two, one more time. Hey there, welcome back for another edition of Hungry Magazine Podcast. Last month, while the National Restaurant Association was in town, I caught up with Chef Tori McPhail of the legendary Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Enjoy the interview. I know you. I know you. You grew up in Washington. Yeah. And uh, I know you kind of had sort of uh, a two roads diverge kind of situation where it was like you were either going to go to New York or you were going to go to New Orleans. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how you made that choice. Um, well, for now, Washington is a tiny town. Um, uh, I guess when I was growing up, it was just a little over four thousand people, and it was either you know you stayed at home and you worked on the farms. Okay, whether it's apple orchards or my family's got a raspberry farms, even still to this day. And so you do that and you're driving a tractor and you kind of run around an old beat up uh, Ford pickup truck or you work in the oil and gas refineries. Um, uh, my hometown's about 10 miles from the Canadian border and about 10 miles from the saltwater. And uh, so it's actually easier for me to go to Vancouver, Canada than it is to down to Seattle. Uh, I guess Seattle's a two hour drive south, if you can imagine that. A bunch of my friends, even today, they married their high school sweetheart, and uh, they're working in the factory for 15 or 20 years and 30 years until they get to a point where they're able to, re- to retire, and then um, and then that's it, retire in the same small town. Can't do it. Yeah. Not, not my thing at all. That wasn't for you. No. So I, I, I guess I knew at a very early age, maybe like four or five, that I wanted to be a chef. Yeah. And um, so I ended up graduating high school a little earlier at about 16, and then I got my first apartment in Seattle when I just turned 17. And I uh, started culinary school, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, I was always the guy to get like straight C's all the way through high school. But it uh, wasn't until I got to culinary school it was straight A's. It was fun, hanging out with buddies, and it wasn't really like work. It wasn't mm-hmm. really like school. And uh, so the chefs pulled me aside and said, "Hey, look, let's um, let's talk about your future. I think you got something special, kid." And so they said, "Hey, look, let's um, take a little time to map it out." And they said, "New York or New Orleans?" And, um, and Great thing about New Orleans—it's the people, it's the culture, it's it's the history, and it's um, it's the whole town. Uh, sure. So as soon as I got down here, I actually thought New Orleans was a beach town. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought I'd come down here with a surfboard and like run around by used Jeep, and uh, you know, run around flip flops and shorts, which I still do. But uh, ends up there's not a whole lot of surfing on Lake Pontchartrain. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a big fat uh, black mud boat. That's it. Uh, but we got good fishing. I gotta yeah. tell you. Uh, but New Orleans is home. Uh, no other place I'd rather be. I heard your first apartment was on Bourbon Street. Were yeah. You, were you crazy? Oh, <laughs> my goodness. It was ridiculous. Uh, Not that chefs sleep that much anyway, so it wasn't like it was going to be a problem. But Yeah. Um, uh, so are you familiar with Bourbon Street? Absolutely. That well? You know, I um, uh, came down to New Orleans with tons and tons of enthusiasm, and I wanted to immerse myself in the um, cooking culture as deeply as I could go, as quickly as I could go. And uh, so me and my buddy said, hey, look, man, let's get um, apartments either near the, like, the university district, kind of way, way, way uptown near Ottoman Park or in the quarter because that's where all, uh, a lot of the action is. And so we ended up getting a really, really cool apartment um, with French doors that overlooked this balcony onto a pool. And the best thing about it, one of them anyway, is included in the rent was a um, – there was a kegerator downstairs, <laughs> and it was nonstop flown with a beta amber, nice. which is a local microbrew. Yeah, absolutely. So here I am, 19, just graduated, and um, one of the neighbors, there's only four apartments in the whole complex, but one of the, on the neighbors on our same floor was a was the general manager of a place called uh, Rick's Cabaret, uh-huh. right? And so he would have mandatory meetings at the pool 
huh. all the time with his employees. <laughs> and so instead so of be running around drinking great microbrew and uh, hanging out with his staff uh, on Bourbon Street at 19 is pretty darn cool. Was it in the leasing contract or was it just an informal? <laughs> it was just very informal. and um, Somebody people, came every few weeks to refill the keg or put a new keg in? Like every, every 10 days. Every 10 days. Yeah, it was me and my you, guys, you guys were precocious. Oh my God. Crazy. <laughs> so the, the ritual coming home was to find out uh, who was hanging out in the pool, mm-hmm. what kind of party was going on. And we could cruise downstairs, still in our chef wear, you know, working at Commander's, still smelling like the best Creole food in the world. And we fill up a couple uh, pitches of beer, cruise upstairs, and we just use those as our cups. Nice. <laughs> Get nice. cleaned up, join the party downstairs. And that was really kind of the, uh, the kickoff or our big introduction to New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about Commander's Palace and you, you know, of course, I'm sure you think about it every day, but, you know, it's, of course, it's that great history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I think about it, you know, you think about, well, of course, you think about Emerald and, you know, you think about Jamie Shannon and you think about Paul Prudhomme. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you, when I look at it, I think it's almost like the culinary version of being the president of the United States. You're like the next guy in a succession of really mm-hmm. great people. There's all that history. You kind of, you have this opportunity to look back and kind of see the culture that preceded you. And I'm sure that's imbued as you as a young cook as you're working there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder what that's like, what, what, you know, kind of maybe as a young cook and then also now, how, how you take that with you every day and what you do. Um. You know, when I was 19 and just started at Commanders, it, uh, I was blown away. Because um, in culinary school, they teach you how to um, study and they teach you how to cook. Okay, but they don't teach you how to perform and how to um, physically move in a professional kitchen. And so I, I was lost, you know. Even graduating at the top of the class, it was, uh, it was a struggle. And as I first started out, I never aspired to be a chef on this level. Um, but I, I took some, some good advice and they said, look, uh, Tori, always put yourself in a winning position no matter what you do or where you go. Right? Always try to put yourself in a position to win. And so with that, you just you study, you study, you study. And if your dream job comes along, if you've done that, at least you get to make that choice, either yes or no. Okay? But if you take the easy road, you know, your dream job may come along and uh, somebody else might, might get it. So you always try to push hard and do the best you can. Um, take good advice. Learn from other people's mistakes besides your own, and uh, good things are going to come your way. And so um, I'll tell you what, um, jobs like this do come around uh, uh, very few and far between. You know, um, Emerald's a friend of mine, and Paul Perdome as well, and I uh, had an opportunity to hang out with them uh, this past week. Um, but I'll tell you what, um, I wouldn't be the chef there today if Jamie Shannon was still alive. And I would, um, I would trade all my successes ten times over to be able to be the executive sue there and have him back because he was a um, very dear friend and um, I missed the hell out of him. And it was um, definitely a rough time that um, as soon as I needed him the most um, was right after he passed away. So it was, um, it was tough for all of us. What, you know, I, I mean, I think America is familiar with Jamie Shannon, though probably not, obviously not as familiar because of all the TV things that Emerald and Paul have done. Uh, and he, but he was your mentor. He was the mm-hmm. guy that really brought you up. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about him or tell me what you, what, what, what he, you know, what, what he taught you. Um, more than just cooking every day and more than just what happens with food. Um, classy guy, um, larger than life, huge personality. Everybody loved him. And uh, I guess he taught me more about how to become a, uh, a chef and how to act like a chef without any of the food aspects. You know, I, I rely a lot on 
a lot of my sous chefs, like Ivan Lubier, taught me a tremendous amount about how to move, how flavors go together, because he, he and I were basically hip to hip, as, you know, who's this young kid coming out of Washington State learning how to cook Creole? And so Eman really um, helped me tremendously. But looking up to Jamie and having conversations about, you know, how to act, how to carry yourself, how to present yourself, um, how to get the most out of the staff, I will always, always, always remember him for the rest of my life for those qualities. And just being about uh, one of those infectious kind of guys that you just really, really want to be around, you know, mm -hmm. the life of the party, even if you might just be standing there um, just kind of hanging out, you know. Definitely magnetic personality. I know you you traveled around a little while. You did some Michelin star work in Europe, mm -hmm. and you were in the Caribbean for a while. Yeah. Um, tell me about the decision to go and do that. Um, I've always been extremely driven uh, from the time I was little, and the goal for me um, has always been to try to get from uh, culinary school on graduation day to become executive chef as quickly as I possibly could. And so you only work for the best people you possibly can. And so the decision for me to come down and work for commanders was a no-brainer. Um, and I always got to the point where I was starting to get bored a little bit. And so I said, hey, look, in order to be well-rounded, I know I need some hotel experience. And um, at that time, um, I guess 12 years ago, uh, the Breakers in Palm Beach was really at the top of its game. And so I said, hey, look, let, you know, let me jump into a, a great um, five-star, five-diamond hotel like that and learn how to, how to do banquets. And I guess we do something ridic ridiculous like $20 million, $24 million a year in banquet business alone. Plus, they'd have seven restaurants. And so I got that experience, stayed there for about two years, and was just itching for more and um, decided I want to go to Europe. But I didn't really want to have to deal with the language barrier, and so I decided to go to London. At least those folks um, speak some form of English, although the accents, <laughs> accents are so thick and the, the slang is so thick, you kind of have to say, I'm right. sorry, what? And uh, so I did that, and uh, I just didn't want to sit in a corner and peel potatoes. And so I jumped into um, a great restaurant. Uh, it was a little bit smaller, and it was called uh, Les Scargo. And it's um, definitely one of the, the top-rated restaurants in Soho. So I jumped in, did that. And even after working every single station in the commander's kitchen and then being the executive sous chef at Palace Cafe and then getting my, my first chef's job at 24 at the Breakers, I was only good enough to go there and make salads. And um, London is a, an amazing town. And in my kitchen, we worked with guys from uh, Switzerland, Germany, several from France, England. Um, I was the only American. Um, also guys from, um, from Asia, too. And it was a big, big, big melting pot. Um, but, I, but I went there, moved up extremely quickly, and I uh, was one of four guys chosen to do the, um, the other restaurant upstairs. And again, in that kitchen, I was still only good enough to nail down the larder or the garmage. Um, but I ended up um, working all those stations um, and uh, took over in the chef's position um, when he had a, a family emergency. And so I kind of ran that Michelin star uh, kitchen upstairs for about uh, 10 days while he, he dealt with that. Um, but in that kitchen, if we were slamming busy, the most we would ever do in any one night would be 29 people. And every single sauce was done to order, the meat was butchered to order, um, the fish was butchered to order, and it was the um, most intense um, restaurant experience that I've ever had. You know, um, 20, sometimes 30 um, steps to every single plate.
it's pretty cool. How does that inform what you're doing today? I mean, obviously there's sort of a template, but mm -hmm. I, I know they let you do what you do. And, uh, you know, I guess there's this idea that, you know, Commanders is hot real or mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I guess the first question is, well, what does that mean? Like, what, what is your guideline for what's Creole to you and, and how, how a dish fits into that or not? Um, uh, well, Creole food and New Orleans food, Louisiana food has been around for, you know, 250 years. And uh, so the big thing for us is, is to uh, understand exactly what it has taken to get to Louisiana food to where we are today. And so I love um, reading antique cookbooks and I love talking to um, people that have been around the block. I love to go to the farms and experience what life is kind of like in those little places. And you got no business messing with the future unless you have a keen understanding of the past. Um, so I'm young, I'm energetic, and we always constantly try to reinvent our menus and reinvent ourselves. And so um, we just try to take those um, old ideas and apply new technologies to them and kind of... Um, um, try to make the most modern, uh, best flavored, uh, most exciting menus that New Orleans has ever seen. Give me an example of a dish that even people might not think is Creole, but where you think it fits into that. Mm -hmm. um, ben and I were just talking today. We have a uh, Louisiana seafood cook-off uh, coming up. And I think what we're going to do is um, uh, possibly do a dish called um, uh, speckled trout hot Creole. And the interesting thing here is you um, take the speckled trout and you salt it for about four hours in the refrigerator. Now, classically, people would say, man, you, you always want to season your meats to order. Um, otherwise, it's going to take out some of the moisture. And that's true, but that's what we want in this case. So the scoop is um, you put you know, salt crust the fish, and then after four hours, you pull it out, scrape off some of the salt. And what happens is the outside starts to dehydrate a little bit. But what's left is uh, pure protein and amino acids, and that um, acts as traction. It gets very sticky. And then what we'll do is we'll take um, uh, local lemons out of, of um, Pacman's Parish. We'll make a little um, a lemon bermonte and then gently poach this speckled trout in that. And then we'll pull it out and we'll try to do it with a selection of um, fresh spring vegetables from the farm. Um, maybe seven or eight different varieties. We'll crab boil all those and then uh, fold in jumbo lump crab meat and then finish the whole thing with fresh herbs and brown butter uh, vinaigrette. Um, so it's definitely um, drawing from... Uh, the local farms and local environment, but it's put together a bit more um, creatively. We talked a little bit about the Abita in the early days. I wonder, obviously, part of your role as, as a kid who grew up in Washington is mm -hmm. learning about the culture, learning about the food, you know, the food mm -hmm. chain down in New Orleans. And I wonder what those early days were like for you. What was your education like? I mean, you're probably going to all the po' boy shacks and going and mm -hmm. just eating your way through. You remember some of those times, what that was like? Um, when I was younger in New Orleans? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, up at home, we ate a lot of burgers, a lot of sandwiches, a lot of hoagies. But down here, like the po' boys came. And so to, to um, you know, shoot in the back door of a place like the River Shack or Le Bon Ton Roulet on Magazine Street and sit down and have a fried shrimp po' boy, it's pretty darn cool. You know, spicy Creole mustard, and they load it up. Instead of regular relish, they do uh, pickled okra on there. So it's got this great, great, great bright, uh, bright flavor, some local hot sauce, and it is darn, darn good. I try to eat as many of those as I can, even, even today. Um, that's, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so so many good places down there, and you hear about all the legendary ones, of course, you know, like Domelisi's and Willie Mays, mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera, and it goes on and on, Ulysses and all that. Um, are there still places that people don't know about? And, you know, you're probably risking something by giving one away, but I wonder if there's a place that you tell mm -hmm. people to go to that people don't know about, or, you know, is there a particular dish or something that somebody should really try if they're really serious about food that you mm -hmm. would send somebody to? 
Yeah, you know, the crazy thing, we have, we have more restaurants open today than we did two and a half years ago before the storm with a population that is at least 30 to 40% less than it was. That's just absolutely crazy to me. It seems like New Orleans today is the, it's the, the home of the neighborhood restaurant. And uh, one of my favorites is uh, in uptown New Orleans. It's called Brightson's. And it, um, it's got some, uh, uh, it's got a great local following. And uh, Frank is a good guy. Uh, but I, I try to sneak in there as often as I can and uh, just chill out and find out what, what Frank's got on the menu, whether it's a bunch of braised rabbit. Um, that's great. Uh, but Bob at uh, Cuvée, he's been around for just a little while. And he's doing great food downtown. Yeah, Cafe Adelaide does. That's our other. Um, Keeping it in the family. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's our other one. But what they do is they do uh, braised duck. Right, and they do all kinds of melted cheese, and they take a regular po' boy, load it up, okay, and then they smash the heck out of it in a panini press, so it's, so it's um, done from both sides. And then um, they'll take uh, fresh eggs, and then mix it up and use that as a dipping sauce with all that great yolk coming out nice. and braised duck. Oh, oh that man, sounds good. I get, I'm, I'm good for about three quarters of one because it's so big and so rich uh, that I just can't finish it all. Um, you know, I, I haven't been down actually. I was down the year of the, the hurricane for Jazz Fest, and so I haven't been back, but I guess one of the things I remember even then, and I know obviously now it's a bigger problem post-Katrina, <clears throat> or, you know, the, the whole fishing industry. I mean, yeah. it seems like a lot of the restaurants <clears throat> pre-Katrina were starting to go away from golf rays, and, you mm -hmm. know, you'd see signs about the people who had golf rays were very proud of it because, mm -hmm. it, you know, and now, it, you know, I, I understand the fishing industry is definitely recovering, and, mm -hmm. and I know that you guys punctuate your menu with, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the local stuff. I guess that's still an issue, or are people becoming are, are now embracing it more because of the hurricane and, and, and sort of there's a there's a movement to be more local. Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I, I can go on and on about uh, Louisiana seafood for hours, and obviously you don't have time for that today. Um, but the, uh, the Reader's Digest version is this: um, with the cost of rising fuel and insurance, and the cost of um, uh, rebuilding these people's boats, the docks, the ice houses all over southern Louisiana. There's just um, probably like half as many fishermen today as it was two and a half years ago. The fish itself, though, um, it's a bumper crop. The last couple of years, there is more fish um, around the city than I've ever seen before. Um, the shrimpers, as an example, and there's less than 50% uh, of those guys. Um, but there's just massive, massive, massive amounts of sustainable fresh seafood right there in the Gulf, but there's nobody out there to harvest it. And so it ends up that 85% of the shrimp that you and I eat every day, it's all imported and farm-raised. And um, I was telling some, some folks yesterday, the shrimpers these days in Louisiana, they get about a, a buck fifty a pound for their shrimp. And uh, we ended up uh, have to, having to fortify our supply as we got here. And so we looked for fresh Louisiana white shrimp here, and we paid um, 30 bucks. Wow. For uh, two pounds, like 15 bucks a pound. And so the, sh the shrimpers getting ripped off um, mm -hmm. at the dock, and all the middlemen are sitting there watching those guys go down in flames, and it just ticks me off to no end. It really does. It's like the coffee market. I mean, you look at you know places. You know, we have a local roaster, Intelligentsia, which has done a lot to go down into like you know they'll go into Oaxaca and meet the farmers direct, and they'll pay them above fair trade because they want to yeah. encourage this relationship. But so many people are just you know they're buying this coffee for pennies on the dollar, and then they're selling it for ridiculous amounts per pound. You know? Yeah. It's the same, same kind of deal. Um, if, if we all don't jump in and demand um, local, fresh-caught uh, American product, uh, those guys are going to go out of business. And then when we do want it, it's going to be double and triple the price. So I think everybody needs to uh, be very aware of what's happening in seafood. Uh, only try to use sustainable local stuff and uh, get out there and pay for it versus Chilean sea bass and you know, funky stuff that's not from here. Mm -hmm. you know?
I know, you know, I don't know if it's on the menu now. I know it was on the website menu. You guys had bourbon braised fig and foie gras beignets. Yeah. I'm sure um, you've heard and you know that we repealed our foie gras ban this weekend or yeah. like last week yeah. just in time for the National Restaurant Show. Mm-hmm. I wonder, is that would that kind of thing even happen down in New Orleans? Would you ever have a ban on that? No, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> we're kind of getting sticky ground here um, with, with that whole deal. But at the end of the day, man, I love foie gras. Yeah. And if Louisiana was to go to ban it for some ridiculous um, um, idea, I'd still serve it because yeah. I think it tastes great. You know, everybody says, oh, man, the duck this, the duck that. Yeah, I get all that, and I've seen the videos. But have you been to a, a huge pig farm? Yeah, have, of have, have you been to a chicken farm? Actually, sure. You know, but, um, but none of that stuff um, uh, makes the news every day. Yeah. You know, select group of people decide, hey, look, this is a, a bad idea, and they use a lot of uh, funding to get their idea across, and I just think it's pretty silly. You know, I heard commanders, you know, pretty much gutted to the studs after the hurricane uh-huh. in terms of the interior. And, you know, one of the things I think about that is, you know, of course, you guys, you have the history of institutional memory yourself for being there for a while. And, you know, everybody has their physical memories all the way back to El Brennan, as you pointed out, she, you know. And, but the one thing that changed is the physical plant, obviously, the dining rooms, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's completely new. And so I guess with that, you know, there's this idea of change and there's this idea of, of newness, even though you have that memory. How does that change what you do? Does it change it in a way? You know, I mean, obviously you guys want to pay attention. to it. Like you said, you can't go forward yeah. without knowing, you know, what happened before. And, but I wonder how you guys think about that on a daily basis and how, how Commanders is today relative to where you were before. Mm-hmm. That's a very good, uh, that's a very good uh, point and question. Um, so I, th- I think really the trademark for Commander's Palace since uh, the late 60s and 70s when the Brandons bought it has all been about evolution. Okay? And uh, Commander's has been around for 128 years. And even before the Brandons bought it, it was always a place to go to celebrate um, special weddings, anniversaries, that sort of thing. Um, but when Paul Perdome took over, it was all about um, evolution and things really started to spin at that point. But the Brennan family, are, um, they're not only wonderful people, they're hands down the best um, restaurateurs I've ever met. Um, and so they're, um, they guide me in the right direction. And since generations of people have come there, we don't want to shake up the boat um, that much. And so what we do is, is change the menu every day. And, you know, so if somebody comes in on Wednesday and they come back on Thursday, there's going to be a couple of brand new dishes, but it's not going to be a shocking change for the menu, right? And really, the, the only things that are sacred today um, that were there prior to my reign was uh, turtle soup and bread pudding souffle. But I think as you ask the commander's customers, hey, look, you know, how much is, is uh, different, how much is the same, I think they would think it was much more um, subtle. And so we're, we're trying, like heck, in the kitchen to um, keep the evolution going at a, an alarming rate because um, I get bored very quickly. <laughs> um, as, far, as far as the dining rooms go, I, I really feel like that restaurant is more beautiful now than ever. And if people haven't come to try it for a little while or if they've, they've um, come under uh, Emerald's Reign or Jamie's or Paul Perdome, uh, people should definitely come in and check it out because I think they'll be uh, pleasantly surprised at um, how new and young and fun the restaurant is. You know, it's it's not your grandma's uh, commanders anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it's a place for uh, younger folks, 20s and 30s, to be able to come in and entertain and dine, feel sophisticated. Uh, but it's also you know a place they can bring their their parents and have a lot of those great memories along along the way too. I know a lot is made of always developing a deep bench in your kitchen, and mm-hmm. I, one of the things I read, of course, after the hurricane was that you were pretty active in hiring a lot of younger culinary school grads, and yeah. 
I would guess that that means that, you know, of course you set the tone, but I would guess that that means there's a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity mm -hmm. bubbling up in there and people are really, you know, moving things in a different way maybe. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're in a people business and we happen to serve food. And um, so the scoop for us is, um, um, as we all evacuated uh, for the storm, the, the kitchen staff um, was about 50 members strong. And as we reopened, outside of the management staff, I only had about three cooks. So I lost about 37 out of my 40. And so it's difficult to have a restaurant as well-known and as well-respected as Commander's, you know, one of the best in the country, be able to rip it down to the shreds and re reopen it again right at the top. It takes a lot of um, uh, personal pride and dedication um, uh, to do it. But at the end of the day, it's all those people you surround yourself with. So I've got the best staff in the city, if not the South, um, guys like Chris Barbado, the chef de cuisine, uh, Ben Ferguson, Kevin Aestis, and Jason Wells are really the, the core group that helped me um, form the commander's menu every day. And those guys, they're chosen there because they think like me. They, uh, we are very um, um, similar-minded and have uh, share a lot of the same goals. And so when, once that happens, once you develop a core group of people, um, the, the me your message gets spread much, much easier. And so for us, we, um, I don't yell, I don't scream, uh, don't throw stuff, it's just not my style. But we definitely make it extremely clear what the expectations are. And you know, some nights are smoother than others. Um, but um, these cooks are always have a learning curve on the up and up. And if somebody really, really wants to jump in with one of the best restaurants in the country to, to, um, to start their career, Commander's is where it's at. Uh, we make everything from scratch fresh every single day. Um, and it's just a, it's a great learning ground, you know. It's the best regional food, one of the best restaurants there. Uh, people want to be in a position to take over a great restaurant at the age of 28, like I was. Uh, that's definitely the place to be. What's, what's the Tory McPhail stamp? I mean, what, what, if you had to characterize what you're doing. Uh, what's the stamp, huh? Yeah, like what's that's a, your... That's a big question, Mike. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could say qu qu quite yet, you know. I'm... Um, I'm going to be around for a long, long time, mm -hmm. and I just want people to come in and have fun. And as somebody reads through the menu, I want somebody to say, no, there's really somebody thinking back there. You know, it's very clever, it's sharp, it's unique, and um, uh, I want to come back again because I'm, I'm curious about how the guy's mind thinks. Uh, so I guess that could be, could be a start, but we'll see. I mean, my perspective looking at your menus, you know, just in seeing, you know, what I remember relative to the past when I've been, uh, it looks like there's definitely a lot more in – culinary influences from outside, mm -hmm. you know, necessarily. It's not all Creole, you know, there's some mm -hmm. Mexican, there's some Caribbean, some of the stuff obviously that you probably picked yeah. up while you were outside. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe that's a fair characterization in some way that you're, you're, you're I don't know, it's not fusion and it's not, mm -hmm. it actually seems to go really well together, but yeah. it seems to be a lot more influence outside. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think Creole food, although it is one specific cuisine, I think these days, um, you can take a, an ingredient or an idea from outside of the city and be able to um, kind of mess with it a little bit. Um, so this week I've been fired up about rhubarb. So I think as soon as we get back, um, I'm going to uh, look up some of the guys in Washington State where I grew up, and rhubarb is very um, prevalent there, and see if we can't get tons and tons in. And um, we can make uh, like rhubarb and mayha jelly, or we can make pepper jelly with, with uh, rhubarb. You can always do rhubarb bread pudding. So you can take an, uh, one idea or one ingredient, coming in, spin it around, and still make it a Creole product so it would fit into the menu. You know, one of the other dishes we have on is, I think we talked about earlier, the uh, fig and foie gras beignets. You know, we, we take the whole idea of somebody else's 
um, business, um, which is Cafe Du Monde, and, um, and take that and kind of reinvent it with foie gras, local figs, a lot of bourbon, uh, fresh beignets, local pecans. But you take, you know, coffee. Coffee's not necessarily Creole. But instead of just using cream or milk in ours, we actually puree in um, fresh duck liver, raw. And um, you'd almost think that it was hot chocolate because it provides a very rich to the dish, um, so it's a little, little something unique you're not going to find there every day either. I read, you know, I just carry it for curiosity. It sounds like a really cool moment. The night you started, it snowed two inches. Is that right? When, when you were the not the night you started, but the night you started as the executive chef. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess it was pretty close to that. Yeah, I've, I've only seen it snow in New Orleans um, uh, one time, and it it, um, it hung out for a little while. But I guess maybe four or five hours later, it was done. It was yeah. gone. Um, I'll tell you what, that was a crazy time, man. Did yeah. you take that as a sign? Was that like the auspicious beginning? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. What have I getting myself into? Here we go. Um, but, yeah, you just never know. I, mean, I, think, I think when we get back, it's going to be about 85 degrees and sticky and hot and humid. Um, but I think I'd much rather have that than the snow. You mm-hmm. know? I'll uh, go to Colorado in the winter and run around for a couple of days. But, man, give me a beach and flip-flops and, a, and an ice cold in one hand. I'm good to go. You, you were on the opening team for Vegas Commanders, yeah. right? What do you think about that whole scene now? And I've mm-hmm. heard a lot of really good stuff. I hear a lot of writers who are like, I want to go out there, and I'm like, it's not going to be good. And they're just yeah. blown away. Yeah, it is. Um, it's getting to be one of the best food towns in the world. It really is. Um, uh, you've been to Vegas many times, right? Um, Vegas is really cool to go to and hang out for maybe uh, four or five days. But after, um, from my perspective, you know, living there for maybe a year and a half. It's a bit like seeing uh, Mickey Mouse with his head off. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, you know, there's, a, there's a weird face there, and it's not Mickey's, and it's kind of, it kind of ruins the dream. You know? Right, right, right. Um, but, uh, but, these days, but, but these days you go, and you can, you can, you can bounce around to all the best um, restaurants and see the best chef's menus in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it is mind-blowing how many restaurants there um, there is more restaurants in a um, in a uh, smaller distance than anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Great restaurants of that caliber. And, uh, that's pretty cool, man. Mm-hmm. You know, Mickey Mouse or not, it's pretty pretty cool to be able to go around and um, and check out all those menus. Sure. Br- yeah. Bring your checkbook. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what absolutely. I mean? Get, get a little lucky on the craps table because, <laughs> brother, you're going to need it. It's, it's not <laughs> cheap, that's for sure. The other thing that's really interesting to me, I mean, it's it's devastating or it's heartbreaking in some ways, but it's just wine. But, you know, I heard you guys lost your cellar or 18,000 bottles during the hurricane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did, was there anything that was recoverable or was it all gone? Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you walk into the commander's wine cellar, you walk into the front door, and um, the big cooler of all of our whites are on the left-hand side. And we're able to... Um, keep our entire stock in refrigeration where a lot of other restaurants don't have that luxury. Um, you know, so all, all those labels are ruined with the humidity and the water and all that. I mean, once something molds, obviously you can't, you know, sell, you know, beautiful um, uh, white burgundy that has moldy labels and all that for 250 bucks. Uh, you might be a little suspicious. Um, but all the, all the reds, we have um, a cinder block cellar, okay, that is in between... Um, uh, our corporate office, and it's on the, the bottom, there's another um, uh, floor on top. And so with all this cement and concrete and all that, the, the wine cellar actually uh, was remarkably good. And so it was pretty cool for 
for us to go in and, and pull bottle after bottle after bottle and just do tastings of it because there's nothing else going on. I mean, what are you doing? You're like ripping out sheetrock. Yeah. You know, when you get done with that, you're like, you know what? Let's drink some um, some really good Bordeaux. <laughs> okay, let's go. And so we'd uh, we'd make a sandwich and, and uh, sit down. You're probably the first person to lay sheetrock and drink Bordeaux. That's it. Yeah. yeah. I'll take another bottle of Hobrion, please. Let's go. Um, Although New Orleans, that might be a regular thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> People are serious about food, so. <laughs> That's it. And, and so we kept waiting for for us to like pick a bad bottle, and um, uh, when you're drinking wine that good, um, obviously you know, you're going to expect that you know through the, through the hurricane and we hadn't had power in I don't know four months. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of expecting some of the bottles to be bad, but um, I'm a huge fan of wine, and so we assembled a. Um, an expert team of um, uh, wine folks. They came in and sat down and drank even more wine. They said, you know what, this looks great. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to salvage a lot of it. That's cool. Yeah. You know, one of the things I probably watched you know, a couple of months ago was the NHD Daniel Blue yeah. uh, visit to Commanders. I wonder what that was like for you. I mean, you know, you're a well-accomplished cook in your own right. And, mm-hmm. you know, in fact, you're probably a king in New Orleans. And, and you're, you're certainly, you have a national profile. But, you know, do you, do you get excited when a guy like Danielle comes in? Yeah, of course. Um, um, so we knew he wanted to feature commanders in, in one of his um, shows after hours. And so I was, um, even two or three months out, I was extremely nervous picking up the telephone call, or picking up the telephone for a conference call and just talking to the guy. Because I, yeah. I met him once or twice. And it's one of those where, you know, if you're running around, ask for food and wine, you'll, you'll dart over and say, you know, Mr. Baloo, my name is Tori McPhail. I just wanted to say hello. Right. And, and that's it. And then you go away. Yeah. Right? And say, wow, man, I shake the guy's hand. But, you know, as the, as the years progress and, and uh, he says, hey, look, let's do a cooking show together. Well, that's, pre- that's pretty darn cool. And uh, so he walks into the kitchen. You're like, wow, you know, I can't believe this is actually happening. And after that, all the... Uh, all the butterflies went away. We just started to mess around and cook, and um, had, had a had a real good time. Yeah. And uh, even though Commanders um, has a certain profile, and, and these days we're we're getting much more media attention. At the end of the day, I'm just a regular guy with a cool job. Yeah. That's kind of kind of the scoop. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. You know, cooks are probably the coolest guys of anybody, even if you're a celebrity or whatever you are. Yeah. I mean, it's like you you know, for the longest time in our country. And, you know, going back, you know, sure there were some cooks who were cooks to kings, like Karam or Escoffier, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's been a journeyman profession until until the last generation, really. Yeah, that's, that's kind of it. I mean, Paul was, Prudhomme was one of the first, probably, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's, he's really the one that put Commanders firmly on the map these days uh, for being a top-shelf restaurant. And Emerald... Um, you know, Emerald was an Emerald when he was at Commanders. You know, he was just the next guy, mm-hmm. and I think I think he probably, and we'll have to ask him, but I'm sure he probably got a lot of flack for maybe not living up to Paul Perdomo's reputation while sure. he was there. Who's this Portuguese dude from New England? Yeah, what's, <laughs> what, what's up with the, the the Jersey guy with an accent cooking Creole food? You know, yeah. bam or not? So, <laughs> uh, so I don't know, but uh, uh, my friend's done quite well for himself. Yeah, he really has, and you know, the whole thing with the, the Food Network is just blown. Up. Up and uh, since then, he's just gone on to do amazing things. One of the things, you know, it's a Paul Prudhomme thing, but maybe I wonder if it's Commander's thing too. Is I, I remember, you know, I love to cook, and one of the books, uh, the, the seminal books, of course, is Paul Prudhomme's Louisiana Kitchen. And, mm-hmm. you know, the one thing in there that always gets me that I just, you know, is 
his technique for making a roux where you like crank up the oil till it's like super scalding and you throw yep. the flour in mm-hmm. and you pray it doesn't burn and you yeah. know do you guys do that or do you guys do more gentle i wondered how what you, you know your techniques are no, no we get freaky with it we do <laughs> absolutely big big pots of uh, oil on top of the stove and just go um so the Brennan. So you guys are slinging the Cajun napalm. Is well, that's, kind of, that's kind of the scoop, man. If you want good flavor, you got to be uh, got to be a little brave. Yeah. You know, you can't be timid in the kitchen like yeah. that. Um, but but uh, these days, if, uh, if we're in the weeds, or if we're just about to start service, what you do is you you take your oil, bring it up until it starts to smoke. You start it on top of the stove. We add in all the oil. Uh, sorry, add in all the flour at once. Really, it's just it's 50-50 by volume, oil and, and flour. And then once everything goes in, it's still kind of a pale color. And then whip it into an oven at 400 degrees. Forget about it. And every 20 minutes, just go back and, and hit it. And it's much more of a gentle heat after that. And um, it provides you a larger window of opportunity. But at least you can jump in, expedite, and do all that versus you know sitting there sweating on the stove for half an hour. Sure. I read that you guys were doing your own moonshine in Falernum. Is yeah. that true? You guys still doing that? Absolutely. We actually drank the, the last of a, a quart jar last night. Did Woo! you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling bright and chipper this morning. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, we're uh, we're making a lot of cool stuff. Well, well, yeah, well, would we be surprised to see it's happening that we might not know about or we wouldn't think of going on in Commanders? Um, the latest batch was um, sour cherry and Louisiana sugar cane. And so I think um, getting it from New Orleans to... Um, uh, Chicago. I know we broke a bunch of federal laws and a bunch of state laws, but damn, is it good. It is really good stuff. But um, So the scoop is you take, it's real simple to make, right? Four ingredients. And a, and a, but once you're here, you're safe because, you know, we're yeah. built on, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. and drum running. And, you know. That's it. Um, so what you really want to do, and people should Al do Al Capone is a national hero, you know, for us. <laughs> I had a, a cocktail last night called the Al Capone. Um, we, we sat down and had dinner at Trump's uh, new place, yeah, 16. 16. Um, and Frank, I'll tell you what, he's doing amazing, amazing stuff. We sat down and had uh, one of his cocktails. It was good. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's four ingredients. Moonshine, right? It's um, uh, any kind of fruit you want at the peak of season, or you can also use dried stuff. You add in uh, sugar and um, um, add sugar that actually has flavor to it. So we use Louisiana sugar cane, so it's got some more zip. Distilled water, not tap water, right, because it's got all kinds of um, cleaners in it. And then uh, some type of yeast. We use a Montrachet yeast. And then we mix the whole thing up together, and it's like one packet for five gallons, pretty much does it. And you mix it up and let it ferment for about three and a half weeks, a month. Sounds good. And then uh, puree it, strain it, and then pop it in a still. And it ends up that I bought a hand-hammered copper still from Portugal, and I had it shipped over here. Um, on Little stickers on the side, it was described as a copper, copper garden ornament. Right, because right? you're not, yeah. To be able to smuggle it in, you know? And, um, I spent some time up in northern Michigan last year, and yeah. there's a lot, they're doing a lot of O2V and some really interesting things up there. Yeah. And then when I got back, I was like, I, I should try doing something at home. And I was like, yeah. and it's like that. Yeah. You can order it, but mm-hmm. you know, it's for ornamental purposes only. Yeah, I think everybody needs to drink more liquor. That's you know what right. I mean? Put the smile on your face, and it's a lot of fun. But um, handcrafted stuff, it just tastes better. Yeah. You can get the stuff in a bottle, sure. Okay, but it's kind of fun to make your own too. So, do you do a do you do you have your own like high end deconstructed hurricane? You know, what? not yet, but it's a darn good idea. I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I figure, you know, just you know, give me credit. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> uh, Mike's hard um, hardcore hurricane. There you oh, go. Oh, it's got a ring to it. Hot yeah. hardcore hurricane. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, but you know, what? I guess the other thing too is perspective, and I mean, not to go back to it or. If it brings you down, but I mean, obviously, seeing your mentor die young, die early, and then also going through a hurricane, 
I mean, I, I'm guessing you were a guy who probably lived life, it sounds to me like you lived life fully beforehand, but do you have a different perspective? I mean, do you operate differently? Um, do you cook like every day is your last? I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I'm being cheesy, but I guess I'm curious, you know, mm -hmm. how that informs you now. Commander's is an unusual restaurant with its, um, its uh, history and the previous chefs. And um, so when your friend passes away and you inherit one of the country's best culinary jobs, um, it, it kind of freaks you out a little bit. And as a 28-year-old guy taking over a restaurant that is that fabled, it makes you grow up very, very quickly. And um, so what you do is just um, um, make the best of it, right? Uh, go in with a solid game plan every day, hire the best staff, you stay focused, you stay dedicated, and at the end of the day, it's, it's what I love to do, you know? Um, so it's definitely not too much for us to handle. Um, and even go through the hurricane, you know, I think you just got to be the, the full package in your personal life and in your professional life. And when hard, hardship comes, um, people will look to you um, on a personal level if you've been there for them on a professional level and vice versa. And so even though Commanders has about 225 employees, um, I have 224 friends. And um, with that, I feel like you can go anywhere um, and do anything, whether it's restaurant business or hurricanes or anything else. So um, that's kind of, kind of the scoop. I really appreciate doing this. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. It really is. Thanks for listening to this edition of Hungry Magazine Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you have any questions, please drop me a line at mjnagran at hungrymag.com. And in the meantime, stay hungry. <laughs>